Welcome back to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Geary. They say that you can't put God in a box, because after all, what kind of box would you use? We get packages delivered pretty often from ordering online. We get free shipping, so it doesn't take much to look things up online and make a few clicks and then see it on our front porch within 48 hours. Many times it's quicker than if we were to schedule time to get to whatever store we would need to get to the same items locally. And having a box show up that contains the item is definitely a welcome convenience. But sometimes I wonder just who put it in the box and what reasoning may have been used. We've gotten small items on occasion in pretty big boxes. The item sitting in the corner of a bigger box than what was actually needed. A bit deceptive when you pull it in when you pull it in from the front porch, forgetting what you ordered. Something large for your neighbors and porch pirates to see as they go by when the item could have arrived in something tinier and put it in an envelope. Sometimes a bigger box arrives and it's full of a number of smaller orders, all put in one box. Separate little receipts for the multiple items. The fulfillment center changing up the script and placing the multiple items in a single box to send it out your way. Someone makes a decision prior to delivery just what type of box or packaging to send your way, or whether to opt for a padded envelope or a plastic sleeve or cardboard tube or even a king-size mattress one time delivered by mail that we got, rolled up bound in a ton of packaging tape, which once it was freed from the bindings expanded as it absorbed the air. One time they sent the hardware for a barn door we were installing in the kitchen in a box, but that box was obviously not the best choice because it tore in transit and somewhere along the way the hardware all fell out and we got an empty box delivered to the front porch with a big hole in one side. When it comes to online orders, almost everything can be put in a box it seems. But when it comes to God, God can't be put in a box. He's too big to be contained and while he never changes, his ways, his methods, his processes and procedures, well, they may change. And sometimes it may just surprise us what God sends our way or how he packages it. Or the fact that the way he did things before does not mean it will happen the same way as last time. We can't put God in a box because we need to be on our toes, fresh, alert, seeking, aware, avoiding the red of assuming God is predictable and those we don't need to be looking to him and just how and when he might show up in our lives during those times. Looking to God, fresh for today and not stale and coming out of a box. In the Gospel of Mark, as we pick up in Mark chapter 7, we too see two stories today, two miracles. One of them is actually recorded only here in the Gospel of Mark. The other one we see elsewhere as well. And yet we see in this that God cannot be put in a box. We always need to be on our toes as we seek him and as we follow him. Something the disciples are learning as Jesus starts beginning that final route as he starts heading towards Jerusalem for the final death, burial, and resurrection. The whole point of why he came. But they still have so much to learn. And they're learning that God cannot be put in a box. Let's pick up in Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, we begin reading in verse 24. From there he arose and went to the regions of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So we read that from there, he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this just isn't around the block. This is, isn't around the corner. This is a trek. 
This is over 50 miles to go from where Jesus was ministering in Galilee up to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Why did he go this way? Well, one of them, we saw back in chapter 6, that the disciples had come back from ministering two by two, from casting out demons, from going into all these villages, and he had invited them to come aside by themselves to rest for a while, some one-on-one, some R&R, some time to pour into these disciples who would be taking the message forward once Jesus finally uh, concluded his earthly ministry. And yet we saw that they were immediately interrupted. The crowds had come. They had pressed in. They fed the 5,000. And then we saw the storm. And then after that, this delegation from Jerusalem came and was critical seeing the disciples washing without the, uh, eating without the washed hands, not uh, abiding by the ceremonial laws that the religious leaders had conjured up for people to follow that wasn't exactly according to scripture. And they had this whole debate about what was clean and what was unclean. And so Jesus heads out of town, a much needed break, a much needed retreat. And yet I think it's interesting where Jesus goes. He's just had this conversation at the beginning of chapter seven with the religious leaders that what goes into a man cannot defile a man. It's what comes out of man, what comes out of man's hearts, that eating with unwashed hands, that can't defile you. Our sinful nature is what defiles us. And they were trying to skirt around this issue by prescribing all of these rituals and interpreting all of the laws to tell people what to do so they could feel and appear uh, clean before the Lord. And yet Jesus was saying, it's not about that. You need a changed heart. You need a cleansed heart. And so Jesus skips town. I wonder if he needs a little break from this religious stuffiness of Jerusalem and in Israel at that time. And so he heads north to Tyre and Sidon. Now, this is a completely pagan place. So here he goes away with the disciples down to Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon is along the coast. So imagine they're renting an Airbnb there somewhere along the coast to finally get this time away. And this woman comes to them and she will not stop asking for her request. Now, Jesus leaves the hand-washing center of all these uh, religious leaders saying the things that they need to do and not do. He steps outside the box. He steps outside and says, okay, I'm going somewhere where there's no foundation, where there's not all this religiosity. In fact, they're so far from that, they're not even thinking about the God of heaven because they're totally steeped in pagan religions. So he goes to this area where of, uh, what's it called there, of Tyre and Sidon. Now here, there were Phoenician people. There were Phoenicians in Northern Africa, and there were Phoenicians up here. And these ones up here were the Syrophoenicians because they were mixed with the Syrians. But these are pagan lands. These are Gentile lands seeped through and through. In fact, they're known for the worship of Aphrodite, the goddess, Diana, Sybil, whatever you would call her. And much of the religion did center around sensual worship practices, pagan temples where things that are unspeakable would take place. And this was the culture. This is where people went. Now, this woman comes and her daughter has an unclean spirit. Her young daughter, she says. Now, that could have been anything from two years old to 15 years old. It it basically meant that the girl was not married. But most typically, it was used as someone who was kind of in those preteen years, maybe seven to 10 years old. So this young daughter has an unclean spirit. She's demon-possessed. How does a young girl get demon-possessed? We give ourselves over to demonic practices. Our world is full of demonic activity. In fact, when it comes to pagan worship, Satan is behind all pagan worship. Any worship other than worshiping the true and living God, any worship that does not bring uh, glory to Jesus Christ, it is from the Satan, it is from the devil, it is from Satan. 
because Satan does not want anyone worshiping the true God. Satan does not want anyone coming to Jesus Christ because he knows that Jesus Christ can save us. So he doesn't care if man worships, worships something. He just wants them to worship anything but the truth. So all those pagan deities, all those rituals, all those old world types of worship and idolatry, Satan is behind all of it. That's why there's some power in it, because there is supernatural demonic activity behind it. But it's deceptive. It's leading us away from the truth. There's an interesting book out that I've just started reading called Return of the Gods. It's by Khan, who also wrote The Harbinger and The Harbinger Two, And you can take those things with a grain of salt. But he does make a good point in The Return of the Gods, that many of the gods that we're dealing with in the West, particularly here in America, they're pagan gods that have just resurrected in, in different faces uh, and manifested themselves in different ways. But at the core, it's the same kind of worship. This atheistic worship of everything's God, anything's God, the sensual worship. But behind all of them are pagan deities, are demonic forces, are demonic spirits. So this woman who's Syrophoenician by birth, who's been worshiping these pagan gods, her daughter is now demon-possessed. Could it have been that she exposed her daughter to things that were demonically inclined? Could it have been that she took her daughter to the temple to see some of these things, to participate in some of these things even? Could it be that she did not protect her daughter from these things and thus being exposed, her daughter is now given over to these demonic spirits she's possessed and this woman doesn't know what to do? Well, this is where Jesus is. He's come this way and whether he came to do a deliverance ministry or not, this is where we find him in Mark chapter 7. And so we're told there that he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. Jesus could not be hidden. Jesus shined wherever he went. Here he is. This area is about 50 miles from where he was previously. And we know down in that area, he couldn't go anywhere because the crowds were always pressing in. The crowds knew before he got there. The crowds are in a frenzy wanting the healing touch of Jesus Christ. But here, even 50 miles away outside the borders of Israel, he cannot be hidden. This was supposed to be time with his disciples. This was supposed to be time to have this retreat, this R&R, to pour into them, to build those relationships, to equip them in the things that they would need to do once he was gone. But a city that is on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus said that to us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, that we are the fragrance of Christ in every place. Jesus cannot be hidden. He will come to the surface either by opposition because people see him there and it's it's convicting that the light is shining in darkness or because the needs are so great that people will say there's something different Jesus is here there's something different in the presence that's here and we are the fragrance of Christ in every place Christ shines through us and hopefully as cities upon a hill we will not be hidden that people might seek us out that people might see us that we would let our light shine before men that they might glorify our father who is in heaven so this woman who has a young daughter who has an unclean spirit, she heard about him and she came and fell at his feet. And it says, she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. There's a persistence here. If we look at this same account in the Gospel of Matthew, it seems that Jesus at first almost seems to ignore this woman a little bit. And the disciples finally said, hey, will you do something about this? Maybe it's because they want to get on with their retreat and they're like, can you just get this lady out of here so we can start this R&R time that we need? Or we can get into the teachings, the discipleship that we need from you. They say, Jesus, can you deal with this? But she keeps going at it. Two things we see here. First, she fell at his feet. Second of all, 
she kept asking. This woman is desperate. She's fallen at his feet. She's gone everywhere else. She's tried anything she could try, and yet she's desperate at this point. And she keeps asking, realizing that only Jesus is the solution to her problem. All the world's solutions have fallen short. All the world's solutions have no answers. And God brings us to these points sometimes as well, that we turn to the solutions of the world, we turn to the things of this life, we turn to man's wisdom, to man's resources, to our own resources, and we come to the end of them. And that's finally when we fall at his feet and we ask and we keep asking and we keep asking some more, asking until he answers. Now, there is something great about this because she does keep asking. She doesn't give up. And so should we have that same posture to our Heavenly Father. We don't know why the Lord doesn't always answer us the first time. His answer sometimes could be yes, or it could be no, or it could be not right now, or wait a little bit, or, or keep asking. But we keep asking. Jesus told the parable about the old woman who, um, you know, she kept pleading with the judge that, that he would deliver, and she didn't give up. And so should we pray with such a fervency. So should we pray with such persistence. There's times when we give up prayer because God has not answered right away. But we should not grow weary in doing good, knowing that the proper time we will reap if we do not lose heart. So we press on in prayer. We continue asking. This woman, she fell at his feet and she kept asking. What are some of those things that you may have given up asking the Lord for? Maybe you felt like you were just talking into space or just blowing hot air or, okay, Lord, I'm hardening my heart. Maybe you're not really listening to me. Now, it's true, sometimes when we keep asking, the Lord begins to shape our hearts and change our hearts and refine our prayers when we start realizing, maybe I'm not asking for the right thing. Or maybe I'm asking amiss because my heart is actually not right in this situation. And in those things, then God begins to change our heart and to show us, this is actually what you need to be asking for. And when we get the correct request, then he gives it to us. But this woman, she keeps asking. She keeps asking that the Lord would touch her daughter, that the Lord would heal her daughter, that the Lord would set her daughter free. Can I encourage the parents out there not to stop asking Jesus to help their kids? This woman right here, she kept asking because her daughter meant so much to her and nothing else seemed to work. Parents, don't stop interceding on behalf of your children. I was talking to a woman recently and she was talking about a study that she had been going through where she'd been listening to some recordings and they were really helping her and her husband and just their perspective on things that the Lord was doing. And yet her daughter is old enough now and her daughter's a, a woman now and her daughter's married now and kind of that fine line between how to guide your adult children and how to step back and let the Lord work in their life. And so she was kind of just praying about how do I share this with her? And she had mentioned these studies that she was listening at one point and she really felt like her daughter needed to listen to these as well. And yet there was really no opportunity other now that her daughter's an adult to say, you need to listen to this. Um, I'm going to make you listen to this. We're not going to watch TV tonight till we listen to this. Things that she could have done when she was at home. But instead she had to wait. And then one, daughter, one day her daughter said, hey, mom, I was thinking about those teachings that you were talking about. And I kind of remember those guys' name and I was looking them up, but I couldn't find them. And so she was actually searching on her own. And so her mom finally just said, here, let me just text the link to you. And she was able to text it to her and share that resource with her. But the mom was so encouraged because she saw that Jesus was pursuing her daughter. 
that while she had to take a step back as an adult to an adult and trust this uh, daughter to Jesus and trust her now to make wise decisions as she's an adult and beginning her own family, that Jesus was still interceding. And that Jesus as well was using her, and yet it would be in a different context than it was before. No longer being the the main voice of reason or being because I said so, or, hey, you're getting in the car, I'm taking you to church. But through prayer and intercession, watching Jesus be faithful. And that's the same thing we see with the Syrophoenician woman here. She keeps asking. She's on her knees, she falls at his feet, and she keeps asking. Well, it says here in verse 27, But Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Now, the Jewish mentality of the Gentiles was that they were dogs. There's dogs that ran around. They were unclean animals, sort of packs. If you think today like coyotes or um, wild packs of dogs that are just scavengers, uh, just eating carcasses and going through the trash, these were unclean in the Jewish mindset. You would avoid these dogs. And that's how they referred often to the Gentile people. They called them these dogs, these savage dogs, these scavenger dogs. They were unclean. You would avoid them. And to the Jewish mindset, you would never go to a Gentile. You would never go into a Gentile home. You would not fellowship with a Gentile because they were just dogs. Now, Jesus picks up on this a little bit. Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. So kind of this uh, Jewish mentality, he picks up on it, though he does not hold the same attitude because he loves all mankind. And yet the word Jesus uses here too is not the same word for those scavenger dogs. That word for those scavenger dogs would kind of be derogatory, insultive, kind of like in our English, our B word, we've got the B word. That's the word that they would have used. It was meant to insult. It was meant to say, you're something less. You're something not respected. Jesus though uses a different word for dogs. The little dogs, it's kind of like the puppies. Because there was a different breed of dog, the domesticated dog that was cute, that was a companion, that was there in the home. These were different. These were not scavenging out and about. These were not unclean. These were part of the family. So Jesus uses this diminutive word of dogs saying, hey, the kids at the table might drop some crumbs and the dogs might come and eat them. That's what the woman picks on. But he says, I'm not going to take the food and give it to the dogs. The children need to eat first. In the Gospel of Matthew, in this same account, Jesus tells the disciples when they say, hey, could you take care of this woman? He says, you know, I came to save the lost sheep of Israel. My ministry is for the Jews. But that through the Jews first, he said he would reach the Jews first. And here it says that the, that the children would be filled first. There's hope in that, that Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah. But that beyond that, then that would seep out, that would stretch out, that would splash out onto the Gentiles. Jesus came to save the world. He came to save the Jew first as their Messiah, but he is the world's Messiah. And so even in this, he's saying that it's not yet my time to reach the Gentiles. It's not yet my time to give to the little dogs that which I came to bring to the children first. But she answers. Now, in today's world, someone offends you. You puff up, you fight back, you throw words, you throw an insult. She could have easily said, how offensive it is. You call me a little dog. Who do you think you are? I'm going to cancel you. All this stuff could have gone on. And yet, remember, she's on her knees. She's there humbly. 
And she takes this, even what could have been an insult, she takes it and says, for this, she says here, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. She said, I'm willing even just to take a little crumb. You got a little something for me? You know, when our hearts are humbled, people can insult us and it just rolls right off. We don't get offensive, maybe for defensive, maybe for a second we might want to, but there's something in us that can humble out and say, look, it's not worth the fight. I'm just going to be here humble. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And this woman in humility, she doesn't react in her flesh. She doesn't fight back. She doesn't say, oh yeah, and try and up the ante and, and throw the first punch or throw a punch back. She's still there on her knees. She keeps asking, she said, but, but Lord, anything you could give me, I would take even a crumb at this moment. What humility, what humility this woman has. And because of that, we see there in verse 29, it says, Then he said to her, For this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Jesus said, For this saying, go your way. Because she said, I'm willing to take even a crumb. He says, go your way. He honored her faith. He worked in that situation. You know, remember the Jewish attitude was, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to intermingle with them. They're just, they're just dogs. They're beneath us. But Jesus came there. He stepped out of the box. He crossed the border. He went 50 miles out of his way into this Gentile territory. And when this Gentile woman comes, he says, yeah, I can do that. We don't always know where Jesus will send us, but Jesus will often send us out of the box. Jesus will send us out of the mold of who's reachable, of who's safe, of who we're comfortable with, of who we normally would talk to. You know, Jeremiah was young when God called him. And the Lord had to say, you will go to whom I send you. And don't be afraid of their faces. Because when he looked in their eyes, Jeremiah said, these are not the people I'm comfortable with. These are not the people who are welcoming to me. These people are rejecting me. The Lord said, you will go to whom I send you. Who does the Lord want you to go to? What, what borders, what comforts, what uh, comfort zones does he want you to step out, out of? What burdens is he going, giving you out of? And it may not be what you're most comfortable with or where you feel like you have the most clout or where you might fit in the most. But the Lord's saying, it doesn't matter. I want to use you there. Are you willing to cross the border? Are you willing to go to those who are unreachable? I love hearing testimonies of people who are beyond the reach of God, maybe involved in certain things or lifestyles or practices that were so far from godliness, and yet God reached out to them there, sent someone there to them. Now, of course, we need to be careful that we don't go places where we could be tempted or we could fall into darkness. We need to continue being light there. We can't compromise in such ways just saying, oh yeah, but I'm trying to reach these people. Like we don't go to the parties and, and drink and do drugs and have promiscuous sexual activity because we're saying, but we're trying to reach them. So we're trying to be all things to all people. No, we can still be the fragrance of Christ in every place. But sometimes it steps, it takes stepping out of our borders and going someplace that we normally wouldn't be or normally not comfortably, uh, uh, not currently or not regularly seen in. And the Lord says, I want you to go there because there's someone to reach there. Jesus steps out of the borders and he finds this woman with, with great humility, someone that most of the Jews would have written off. And he says, for this saying, yes, for this saying, I'm going to do what you ask me. And he heals this woman's daughter. And when the woman comes home, it says, when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. What a scene change this was be, would be. 
I can just imagine when she left what the daughter was doing. Maybe it was a scene from The Exorcist, the, the girl up on the ceiling, upside down, her head spinning in the bed. I don't know. But when she comes back, the demon had gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. There was no great show, no great exorcism, no dramatic event. Jesus simply spoke the word and by his spiritual authority, cast out the darkness that had been in that woman's home, casting out the daughter, the demon from the daughter and the daughter being made well, sitting there peaceful, sleeping in her bed. I wonder how long it had been since she saw that. Maybe there had been much torment all the time. Maybe she never slept. Maybe there was just uh, things that always brought disruption in the house. But this peaceful scene there, this woman's home had changed. And why? Because she had given authority of her home to Jesus. She had prayed to Jesus. She had humbled herself before Jesus. She had kneeled before Jesus. She kept asking Jesus. And by giving that authority to Jesus and inviting Jesus into that home, the entire home changed. Oh, how we need to have Jesus be the authority in our home. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And for those of us who are in positions, either as husbands or as parents or as wives, we have the authority in that home to give the authority in that home to Jesus Christ. And we need to ask Jesus and give him that over and declare that and invite him in and watch the authority in that home switch so that everything is made right. So things come peacefully and in order. You know, this woman may have been at fault for bringing some demonic things into that home or exposing her family to some demonic things. But something had changed in her heart where she had surrendered to Jesus. And because she had surrendered to Jesus, now her home was brought under the order and the authority of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it starts with us. We need to look in the mirror. We need to look in scripture. We need to look to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, is there something in me that needs to change? Is there some disruption in my home, in my family, in my marriage that's because of my disobedience, because of my sins, because of the things that I'm inviting into this home? Lord, if that's so, then I want to surrender. I want to kneel. I want to repent over that. I want to ask that you would change me. And then I want you to restore order and peace and be the authority in this home. That's what that woman did. And the results were clear as soon as she walked in. So we move from here and we look beginning in verse 31. It says, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of the Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to push to put his hand on him. So Jesus kind of makes this roundabout journey. He doesn't go straight back to Israel. He goes around to the Decapolis. So that's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has been there once before. You remember the story when the demon-possessed man who was in the tombs cutting himself, Jesus cast out the multitude of demons. They went into the pigs and the pigs went into the sea and drowned themselves. This is that same region. You remember the demon-possessed man asked Jesus if he could depart with him to go away because no one would accept him there. And Jesus says, no, you stay. You go tell your friends and your family what the Lord has done for you. You can imagine that that word spread. Now, Jesus is back in this region and the people come to Jesus and they bring someone to Jesus because they've likely heard that this man heals. That Jesus, if you could say that demon-possessed man, Jesus can do the impossible. So they bring this man who had an impediment in his speech and they beg Jesus to put his hand on him. So here Jesus goes around. He's continuing on with this journey. He's not going back to Israel uh, just yet. And this story had spread and so we see what Jesus does next. It says in verse 33, And he took him aside from the multitude 
and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephthatha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Now this miracle here, this is something that is recorded only in the Gospel of Mark. It's not recorded anywhere else. So something about this, Peter was likely very impacted when he saw this, because you remember Mark wrote this gospel from the descriptions and from the information that Peter had given him. So something about this really impacted Peter, perhaps because it was so strangely done, perhaps because it was so oddly done that Jesus uh, put his fingers in his ears and spat and touched his tongue. And then he said these things and the man began to speak once again. Peter had never seen this before, I imagine. Peter had never seen Jesus heal this way before, I imagine. This was outside of the box. Imagine doing this at your next healing service. Someone comes and has an impediment or has some illness and you follow the same prescription. If you tried this, would it work? No, it won't. It's not a hocus pocus. It's not an abracadabra. It won't work because God is not put into a box. There is no method or ideology or uh, complete description or rule book for God working in certain ways. We can't say, well, if we do steps one, two, and three, then God will work. God must work. God has to work because, well, that's the way it's done. God is not a formula. Now, this is important for us to remember when it comes to ministering as well, because God will not always work the same way all the time. And we need to be sensitive to his leading in that moment to know what it is that God wants to do. If you notice in verse 34, Jesus looked up to heaven. He sighed and he said, Ephthatha, that is be opened. He was looking to heaven. He was looking to the Father for leadership and for guidance for what to do in this moment, in this situation. You know, when it comes to ministry, there are proven methods. There are things that we can do. I remember when I was a kid, my mom was going through a discipleship course and she was learning, sharing the gospel. They had a track called the Four Spiritual Laws. And they began with the first law. Do you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? And you went on to law number two and law number three and law number four to, to lead that person to a place of repentance or at least having the opportunity to repent if the conviction of the Spirit was there. And there are good things to go through. There are principles to go through. But God doesn't always go through a formula or through a routine or through a box that we might put in place. I remember when I was uh, chaplaining at the hospital for a, a series of time, we had kind of an outline of what we should follow, of things that we should ask to kind of lead the conversation. But every time you came up to a door, there was this, this moment of panic of what's going to be on the other side of the door? What's this patient dealing with? What's this family dealing with? And the dependent upon the Holy Spirit that though I have an outline, I need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit to know what is he saying in this room at this moment to minister to this person who's before me right now, who has unique needs in this unique moment in time. Same thing now that Aaron is working at the pregnancy center. When I have an opportunity to go in and counsel male clients, I have some outlines or I have some materials that I can take in to share Jesus with them. But I have to be listening to the Holy Spirit to ask, Lord, what are you saying to this person in this situation at this time? And how should I minister to them uniquely in this moment? Because man is not one size fits all. And again, God is not in a box. So we always need to be leaning and dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Any significant move of God requires seeking him. Nothing can just go according to the manual. 
and ministries and individuals, we go astray, we dry up, we lose the spiritual power when we think that we can can some sort of power or procedure and that that will work all the time because we need the spirit in the moment. We need God leading and guiding us in that moment what to do. And in this moment, the heavenly father, for whatever reason said, put your fingers in his ears, spit, touch his tongue and look to me and simply command that it's opened. And it says in verse 35, immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. This is fulfillment of scripture. This was fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament of the Messiah, Isaiah chapter 35, that the, that the lame would walk, that the mute would speak, that the deaf would hear. They were seeing the Messiah in this moment coming into fruition in their midst. And what's amazing to me is these two scenes right here and the one before with the woman, both of these scenes, these are to the Gentiles. These are not to the Jews. In fact, in Matthew's account of the gospel of the woman who came, whose daughter was demon-possessed, the Syrophoenician woman, she said to him, son of David, meaning she recognized his messianic title because the world knew that the Jews were waiting for a Messiah. And though he was the Messiah to the Jews, he would also be the Messiah to the Gentiles. And so here he speaks plainly. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 35 when it said that the ministry of the Messiah, that the lame would the lame would walk, the, the mute would speak, the deaf would hear. He is the Messiah, the one that has come into the world. Paul said that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, for the Jew first, but also for the Greek. How blessed we are that he is our God. As we finish up the chapter here, verses 36 and 37, it says, Then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Here they are. They are so surprised in this moment. Jesus had gone off script. This was not something that had been done before. And yet they're astonished at it. And they want to, they're, they're just, they're, they're freaking out. They, they want to widely proclaim it. Even when Jesus says, don't speak, they want to speak even more. Now remember, he wants to keep the silent because he's going to the cross, but momentum is building and he can't have that, that multitude come and arrest him and take him to be crucified too soon. He had to wait to the Passover when he could fully fulfill what God had done in the Passover. And so here he is, they're astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And how did he do it? Not by some formula, not by some rule book, not by some routine, but because that day for this man in that moment, that's what God wanted to do. We can't put God in a box because God is not predictable, because life is not predictable. And yet God shows up in every single moment, just as we need him, just where we need him, and just how we need him. Not to say that God changes or that we don't have scripture to guide us and lead us and show us who God is. Not to say that God isn't consistent in character and the things that he does. But to say that God is a dynamic God who is alive in this moment. God is a, a God who, who moves powerfully for each circumstance. God can navigate the circumstances of our lives in this time. And when he does work, when we give those things over to him, when we yield to him, when we're responsive to him in those moments, notice what the people said in verse, 30, verse 37. It says, he has done all things well. What a statement that could be for our life. That we could say no matter what it was that God did, God did it well. 
No matter what it was I brought to him, the way he solved it, he did it well. It may not have been what I thought I wanted or what I asked him to do, but in the end, God did all things well. And that's one thing that will always happen when we open the boxes that God sends to our front porch. When we open them, we'll be to say, Lord, this is not what I anticipated, but Lord, you did this really, really well. Thank you. I praise you and worship you for being God. Thanks for not taking my advice. This is much better, exceedingly abundantly above all that I could have asked or I could have thought. What a promise to hold on to and to rest in this week, that God does all things good. God does all things well. Even in our lives, when he shakes things up a little bit, when he makes us get out of the box, many of us who like routines and predictability, when God disrupts that a little bit, we can rest and say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but I know you're going to do this well. And I trust that you're going to do this well. And I want to surrender myself. And I want to surrender the circumstance and these routines. I want to surrender my family. I want to surrender everything that's out of my control. And I just say, Lord, do this well, because I trust and believe that you will. You know, when I was a kid, one of my favorite things is when my parents would have some kind of appliance box, a big refrigerator box or a stove box. And it was just a plain box that my parents would bring home or from one of the rental units. And yet my dad would take his amazing X-Acto knife and he would cut holes in it or put windows in it or make it into a house or make it into a spaceship. It's amazing what a simple cardboard box can be when we have childlike faith. We can imagine it being something else. We can enjoy that thing for hours. You know, even the best Christmas present, sometimes the box is more fun than the Christmas present. You get to play in it afterwards. What the Lord can do with the boxes in our lives. You can't put God in a box and God doesn't want us contained in a box. But the Lord with his divine wisdom and his divine abilities, what the Lord can do with boxes is, is amazing. What does the Lord want to do with the boxes in your life right now? What can the Lord do? You know, this Syrophoenician woman, she felt that she was limited. Everything was contained in this box. This was her life. This, there was borders. There was limitations. And she gave it to Jesus and he set his daughter free, her daughter free. Same thing with this, this man who had not spoken and who couldn't hear. He thought that that was it. That was his life. His life was contained in, in the four walls of this box. And yet God broke through that and said, no, I have more for you. And the Lord did all things well. We can trust the Lord with our boxes. We can trust the Lord with our limitations. We can trust the Lord with our disruptions. We can trust the Lord when things get unpredictable and say, Lord, I give it to you. Do this well as well. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would build our trust in this moment, in this these circumstances that we're facing. Lord, we give them over to you. We ask that you would take them and that you would bless them and that you would be in control over them. Lord, forgive us where we are seeking to control them ourselves, where we are trying to control the situation, Lord. We ask that in the unpredictability that you would be able to step in and do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think because we worship you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for sending a Savior. And it's in him that we rest. Save us from all things, Lord. First of all, from our sin, but also from this world and these circumstances, protect us. Lord, bless our homes. Show us where we are making them vulnerable. And may we stand up and say, no, for as, me, for, as for me and my house, we will serve you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.